Hey everyone, great news. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Hipsters of the Coast. They're the mages with the curly beards and the vegan potion options. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. They have a unique perspective on things, and Kitchen Table Magic is honored to be joining their lineup. If you're listening to me right now from Hipsters of the Coast, I'm pleased to meet you. You're going to love all of the guests I have lined up for Season 3. And be sure to check out past episodes at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the Hot Sea blog, head on over to hipstersofthecoast.com to get strategy and content for all of your favorite formats. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by CardKingdom.com. The newest unset is available for pre-order now. Unstable is looking fantastic with crazy contraptions, inside jokes, strange math, and squirrels. Oh, lots of squirrels. And most importantly, there's John Avon's full art borderless basic lands in Unstable. You can pre-order them now and support the show using our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash KTM. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. They invite you to join their in-store stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for weekly legacy and standard events. Sir, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dal Rems. I'm the owner of Chessix, and we are getting ready for the, the last of three big summer shows of Gen Con, PAX West, and Dragon Con. We provide uh, dice and figure storage boxes and, and mats for the gaming public. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to the founder of Chessex, Donald Rents. Chessex makes a variety of high-quality dice in different shapes, color combinations, and designs. Donald has been in the gaming industry for decades as an avid chess and backgammon player. Donald cares about the quality of his products, and one day, he decided that he would take matters into his own hands and make his own beautiful dice. When he found the right factory in Germany, Donald's creativity took off with a myriad of designs and colored combinations. For over 25 years, Donald and Chessex has brought fun and quality to the gaming community. I caught up with Donald during the summer of 2017. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Donald Rents, the founder of Chessex. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. My name is Sam. I'm your host. And today I'm with a very special person, Donald Rents, owner of Chessex. Donald, how are you doing today? I'm uh, doing okay, except I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice is a little off. <laughs> That's okay. You sound great. And where are you joining us from? Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's amazing. Okay. And now tell us, right now is kind of in the summer and you are getting ready for some big shows. Yeah, we're, we're putting the, trying to put the finishing touches, although we're not at the finishing touches stage yet, of course, because not, nothing ever goes according to plan. For uh, Gen Con, in, in, for Gen Con Indy in, in, in Indianapolis, PAX West in Seattle, and then um, Dragon Con in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow, those are some really big shows. <laughs> I think that based on how much we actually sell, we sell a lot more at these shows than all the other shows we do throughout the year. So it's kind of bunched up. It's kind of a, it's always been annoying. And this year is a little more annoying because Gen Con is a little later this year because uh, the uh, uh, people there could not get the earlier um, August date that they normally do. Hmm. Interesting. So you've got a lot of orders to fulfill. Yeah, there's a lot of little details 
to do. I don't think people understand how difficult it is. Um, it's not difficult per se. It's just the amount of all the different dice that you have that should try to get it all done at once. It just makes it more of a logistical difficulty. That's fascinating. Okay, okay. Well, you know, Donald, like all things, we want to start at the beginning. And so I just wanted to ask you, how did you start ChessX? Well, going back to the absolute beginning, um, I'm not really a, a role player or a um, historical gamer or tabletop gamer per se. Um, I started playing games through through chess and then later backgammon. And that's how, that's most of my experience. Um, and then what happened is that I started working in a store um, called The Gambit in uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, their main uh, store was in San Francisco on Market Street. And uh, they, to make a long story, try to make a long story short, they were not going to renew their lease in Berkeley. And so they told us that we won't be hired by the end of the year. And this was in April. And so I said, well, you know, maybe I should, you know, I like this, the store aspect. I like the field. I like what I'm doing. So maybe, and I think I could do a store. And so I uh, started my own store in Berkeley called Games of Berkeley uh, in 1980. Um, and then a couple of years later, the local distributor was not doing such a great job. Um, and I started, decided that I could do a better job because myself and some other local stores wanted to get the, the product a little bit easier than from the distributor who was not having on the shelves. And a lot of other distributors were either very far away, so it was difficult to order, or they were not particularly good themselves. So I started a distribution company called Berkeley Game Distributors in 1982. In between there, myself and, and uh, um, a person who was actually one of the former owners of the store that I started working at, his name is Bill Lamb, um, we decided that, that we needed to have vinyl chess mats because Art Neal, who used to supply most of everyone on the West Coast, uh, had passed away the year before, and there weren't any vinyl chess mats available. So we started making vinyl chess mats in uh, a company called the Berkeley Game Company. You can sort of see that Berkeley is kind of like run through the thread here. <laughs> and then we thought, well, what could we do for the gaming industry? Because people wanted to have squares and hexes um, paper mats so they could do their dungeons and such. And Bill discovered that you could use these overhead projection wire-based pens that are available at most art supply and school supply stores on the vinyl, and you could clean it off um, with, you know, with, with water. And the, thus, we started uh, making the uh, uh, battle mats in, uh, it was like May of 1981 or June of 1981 was our first release of them at Grimcon, which is a local convention um, that I don't think is you know, still available, still going on now. But anyways, so we started making battle mats and then um, then later on made, made mega mats because they were popular. And then for a while I was doing those three things. Um, and then about 1986, um, 85, 87, sometime in that, that period, I started importing some chess clocks um, and I put them under the name of Chessex. The name Chesses came from wanting to produce good quality chess and other classic game accessories because I was, was not only playing chess, but I was also playing backgammon. And there there weren't a lot of really good quality products available on a, on a regular basis because the people who were in the industry were not chess players or backgammon players or go players or shogi players. They were business people. And the people who wanted the equipment they wanted like really nice stuff, but there wasn't really a mix of the business person who was was making uh, you know game accessories, and also knew about the games, playing in tournaments and things of that nature. So I wanted to kind of fill that void. So um, the name of Ch Chessex starts um, is really a combination of the word chess 
and classics. Um, so you have CAGSS for chess and then CLASS, ICS uh, for classics. Um, and But the problem is that CHESS, ICS doesn't look that good, okay? And um, because everyone puts X's at the end of things like Xerox, et cetera, um, I figured, well, you know, chess and an EX at the end sounds almost the same and is also easier to pronounce. Ah. So it became chess, C-H-E-S-S-E-X, okay? Little did I know that a couple of years earlier, in Dragon Magazine, they used to have like a couple monsters they would put in there every month. And there was actually a, a monster called Chessex, spelled the same way, which is basically fear deer. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was like, I have no idea. So it was not really a copy or whatever. It was done totally um, you know, separate, but they never sued me. So, you know, I guess they don't really concern, uh, concerned with the name. And I think at this point, it's probably a little too late for that. <laughs> But in any case, um, so um, so that was how the name started. We first started doing chess, backgammon, go, and other kind of equipments. Okay, and one of the things that we started doing at that time was uh, importing dice from Taiwan because the problem was at the time all the dice makers were really on the East Coast, and for the West Coast market, it just took too long to get the product out there from the, from from the East Coast. So I I decided to make some polyhedral sets. Um, Starting with like, oh, translucent, and they also had some marbleized, and they had some uh, opaques, and just brought it underneath the the, uh, the Chessex umbrella, you might say, for other kind of accessories. We stopped doing a lot of the chess and, and backhand and other kind of basic games related related items, but the dice kept on selling. I discovered a factory in Denmark and, and soon we made the speckle dice and I started getting my opaque dice from there. And then just kind of like followed on. Um, and just like any business, you follow the money and the dice were selling. So we kept on doing more dice. I finally met the factory um, in Germany that makes all the real nice dice, makes the Gemini and our signature. And the and uh, one of the things that, that I always liked when I played uh, backhand, there was like, when I used to play a close, uh, place in San Francisco called Days and they had tournaments on Wednesday night and Saturday. And they had a couple sets there that were made out of cattle and plastic, which is a very nice swirly plastic that's no longer made. In, uh, that's no longer made. Um, I don't think they even know the formula for it anymore. Um, it's stopping made because it was a heavy, intensive um, plastic material. And when the cost of plastics skyrocketed in the middle seventies due to, from the energy crisis, that material became really too expensive to, to make anymore for any kind of practical use. But I really liked the, the look of it. And when I met the factory there in Germany, they could actually make things that were very similar. And I said, oh, I really liked the dice that were really kind of nice. I figured that other people would too. So I decided to make some really nice looking dice, you know, hoping that other people would like it also. Well, obviously other people did. And so that was the start of it. And here we are today. You know, every year we're trying to make some new colors. This year we're not making any new colors because, quite honestly, the, the factory is having some problems, you know, keeping up with our orders. So I, I wanted to um, keep the uh, um, current colors in stock rather than take away production to make new colors. Um, so hopefully next year they'll be caught up and then I can make some new dice, you know, colors again. Isn't that such a great problem to have that you are submitting so many orders for dice and there's such a demand for all the different colors and designs that you've come up with and the community and the gaming community loves them so much that your factor is like, we can't keep up. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it still has its, it has its challenges. 
The worst problem to have, of course, is not having orders at all. But the problem is you get into a, in a situation they call overtrading when you can't fill your orders. And then all it does is just get everyone annoyed at you because you don't, you don't have the things on the shelves. I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, I, I look at, you know, I look at our, our our fill ratios on orders, and it's still running around 95, 90, 90 to 95%, but I'm so used to having it much more like 98 to 100% that when it dips down to 90%, you know, I, it, it, it bothers me. I, I don't, I don't like it. Um, <laughs> and also, and also too, I've had to spend a lot more time this year on inventory issues and trying to get the, the, the dice factories to, to make the dice in this order so I can get the product in a little, a little faster so I can, you know, keep the things on the shelves and such. And the, the factory in England that makes the translucent dice for us had, had a major problem, uh, internal problem. And I don't really want to go into all the details because, quite honestly, I don't know all the details. But they really haven't made any translucent dice for us on the polyhedral side for like the last year. But they are making them now. They seem to be getting their their act together. And uh, um, right now we're out, like, out of all the, the translucent polyhedral colors. But I think in the middle part of September, they'll finish this first production run. We'll get them in and have them start making another production run. So, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be full up. And it's, so it's, it's not a, I mean, it's not a, it's not a terrible problem to have, but it still is a problem because like, you know, you always ask people to do things in this order. And then a month goes by and you, you see that your top two high priority dice that you want to have made have not been made, but the next six of eight have. Why is that? You know, don't they understand one, two, three, four? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the thing is that making dice is really a very complex um, process because, first of all, to get all the colors, the, the factory in Germany has like 30 different suppliers of the colors for the material. Because dice are small, quite often the factory doesn't have the material on the shelves and the, the order from, from, the, from the dice factory to the color factory is not so large that they can just immediately just start making it. So they have to get back orders from various different companies to be able to make that color. Some of the reason why the factory is not making that dyes because they can't get the color that's, that's required there and they're having to wait for the factory to get it made. So, so that's the first, that's the first hurdle. You have to get the colors. And then the second hurdle is, and then you have to like mold the dice. Okay. Then you, you take the dice and you tumble them for a certain period to try to wear off the uh, mold mark. If you remember the game science dice, were, which were just straight out of the mold, they always had a little nub on the side, mm-hmm. and that was the mold mark. So, well, what the factory does is they, they tumble it enough so that the mold mark is gone. And that's not an easy process because if you tumble it too much, the dice get too round. If you don't tumble enough, you don't get rid of that, that mold mark. And then later on, the paint will, will fall into, into like little cracks and then you can see it. And even even when they do it right, sometimes there's no way that you can like get rid of that so that like on the 20-sided die, there's quite often like a little spot that you can see, and that's the mold mark, and you really can't get away from that. Um, so they tumble it first, and then and then they, then they paint the die, uh, which is basically they paint the whole, they throw it in, effectively they throw it in a big vat of paint. It's not quite like that, but it's, that's the idea. And then they tumble it again to get rid of the, the paint on the surface, leaving behind the paint that's in the in the grooves of the numbers or the spots. And then they, then they polish it. And then to make a to make one die, it takes between one and two weeks. Okay, wow. between all these different processes. Yeah, because when they tumble it, they they tumble for like twenty four to thirty six hours. And that's that's more of an art than a science because, like I said, you, sometimes you, you don't want to tumble it too much, but you want to get tumble enough. 
And it takes someone who really has an eye for that to be able to know, you know, when's enough. And then, then it takes a while to paint it, it takes a while to, to remove the paint. And then it, all these processes, depending on the polishing, the paint removal, and the tumbling, take, I think, about about maybe 72 to, to 96 hours. So that's like three to four days by itself. And then you got to do everything else, you know, to it and such. Because you, you, it's not it's not zippity doo from one to the next, you know, process. You, you know, you have to go to the next one because each one there's a little bit of a backup and such. And uh, um, so the, the actual molding is probably the simplest thing that they actually do. It's the uh, the trick is in the painting and the polishing, you know, of the dye and such. So, uh, so, yeah, so it's a very, it's a very long process. And uh, it's like trying to, like maneuver a barge, you can't change its direction very quickly. So you have to really plan these things out pretty far in advance. So it's the way it's the way that it's the way they're done. That's so fascinating. So to recap, the factory has to first source the colors and the materials, then they have to mold it, then they have to tumble it to polish and smooth off that mold mark, then they got to dip it in paint, then they got to tumble the paint off so that the paint only stays in the grooves of the numbers, and then they need to tumble it again just to polish it. Correct. And then they have to package it. <laughs> then... They have to inspect the dice. Okay. <laughs> they inspect uh, it because uh, they, uh, you know, they get they get when it comes out. When it comes out, sometimes it doesn't come out quite right, uh, and whole production runs are bad. The, the, the big problem with the four side dice is, is that they're not very heavy, and they have a big surface from which to paint. Quite often, they have a problem that in the tumbling process to, to remove the paint, the the paint sticks enough to where it sticks two four sides together on the faces and they can't break it up. And when that happens, they can't, the dye is not really usable. Right. Because once the paint dries, it basically, is, it, it, the, the D4s are, are, are really kind of tricky. Um, and then um, they also have things where, you know, sometimes a couple dice here and there. I mean, I would say that they probably get about maybe, oh, a two or three or 4% error rate. So I go through and pull out those. We still get some here, and sometimes we get in the sets because we're not looking at every single die um, that closely. But I would say that the, that their inspection process is pretty good because we don't. We probably only get like let's say one die out of a thousand that's actually kind of bad. So yeah, this has to be inspected also, and uh, they have a room with with a lot of natural light and a lot of people sitting around tables. Just looking at dice all day. <laughs> what a funny scene that must be. Just people in lab coats in a gigantic room with a huge table and people just staring at dice. Like they're looking at like like jewelers looking at gems or something. They don't look at like each of those one very, you know, you know, like like inspecting each one. They, they lay it on the table and they, they kind of turn them over to look at the front and the back. So it's a, it's a, it's a relatively quick process, but it's a process that has to get, has to get done. And it'll probably take them maybe it's like, oh, 15 minutes to do like 5,000 dice, okay? But still, that's 15 more minutes, and it's another process. And it's another bottleneck area, you know, where they, uh, you know, things, things get backed up. Interesting. Yeah, because you don't, I mean, they want it to be backed up because they don't want people sitting around there to having to do nothing. And so, Donald, can you tell us a little bit more about what shapes that dice come in? You said that there was the four-sided one. We obviously know of the six-sided dice, which is, you know, what we think of when we think of dice. We've also got the D20, um, but there's also a lot more in between. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, right. We have the the eight-sided dice. Basically, they're all the... They're all the platonic sol- solids, the naturally occurring 
like crystalline shapes, which is you get the eight-sided die, you got the 12-sided die, of course, and the 26 and 4 you already mentioned. There's also the 10-sided die, but that was really, all a 10-sided die is, is just a 12-sided die where two of the sides go out to peaks, where the, 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 the sides are just extended out, okay? And it makes sense because we're, we're in a base 10 um, number system, so you want to have something where you can do percentiles, okay? The the 10 10 die or um, got developed really kind of funny, funnily, about the same time, um, Lou Zaki of Game Science made made one, and we made one within like a month from each other, totally separate. And we never, we didn't discuss it and such. And I remember when the Gamma Trade Show was at the, at the Tropicana, him showing it at there at the show, and I said, Lou, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? It's like, you know, I, I'm doing the same thing, um, you know, I, and and you know. I, I I showed them samples of it like like a month later and such because it takes like six or seven weeks to get the mold made. So, you know, he knew that I didn't like um, just copy his idea, right? Because I couldn't get the die made that quickly. So it was, it was kind of funny that there was no double through, zero through 90. And before that, all what people did was they t- took two 10-sided dice and just said, oh, the green one is the high and the red one is the low. But it's amazing how sometimes that got switched when when the dice got rolled dur- during someone's, someone's role-playing game. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to get a 17, they want to get a 71. <laughs> but when he had the double zero through 90 die, there's no there's no question. It just ended a lot of arguments at, at that point. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Okay. And, and those are the ma- those are the major shapes. And you know, of course, the 60 millimeter with spot. There's also the 12 millimeter with spot. So those are really the seven polyhedrals and the the four, six, eight, ten, tens, ten, which is a double zero through ninety, ten sided die, twelve and twenty, and then the the 12 and 60 millimeter D6. Um, with, with spots, pips, you know, dots or whatever. Um, so um, it's like those are the nine shapes that we mainly deal with because that's what people normally want. There are, of course, other shapes. Um, there's like a three-sided dice, which looks like uh, a football with three sides kind of like chopped off the, the lengthwise, uh, like a triangle from, from the end. Uh, then you have the uh, – uh, there's also six-sided dice, number one, two, three, twice. So sometimes if you're in a game and you're not rolling very high, very well or you're not rolling very high, check the die. It might be a three-sided die. Um, then there's also the uh, – uh, well, game science made like a, a five-sided die and a seven-sided die. Um, and there's also 14, 16 out there. But there's also the 30-sided die out there. Um, but those are not really used as much, uh, so we, so we don't really, don't really focus on them. That's really fascinating. All these different shapes, and uh, you know, when people think of dice, they don't just think of the shape; they also think about the color. Donald, can you tell us a little bit more about all the different colors that you have? Well, I mean, you know, what? Yeah, we just I just try to I just try to like make a range of colors. Um, so there's something for everyone. And of course, there's in, in some games, um, it's not bad having one color because then you know at the end of the game, all those color dice are yours and you can take them, take them away and such. But uh, I just, you know, I just started making different colors because I thought they looked nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of equated it as like dice are like an accessory, like like handbags and shoes are for, are, are for women. It's just sort of like dice are like fashion for gamers, you might say. Um, and that, you know, that if you have a character who's wears a purple, you know, cape, you want, they want to have a purple dye. So, you know, for that character and such. And, uh, and, and some people just like certain colors. So they say, you know, I really want to have yellow is my favorite color. So I want to have yellow dice. People prefer, it's like in chess, 
uh, or backgammon, you like playing with nice equipment. You, you like playing with a nice set or, or nice checkers or, wh- or whatever. Gamers want to play with, with, with nice dice. It's just, you know, pr- a pretty normal thing. Donald, what was your favorite uh, color combination or design? Like, did you have a favorite or, or what was the first one that you made that you really admired? Um, probably, the, probably the first one. Well, it's hard to say the first one that made really admired because it probably was in the speckled dice because those were the first ones that I, uh, that I was involved with making the colors. Um, I don't really have a favorite per se. I have a lot of ones that I thought that, that looked nice. But one of the things I found out very early on is that what I what I like is not necessarily what the market overall likes. So I think I've made a lot of colors that are not very good. Um, but you never you never know. Some colors that you thought there was one color that um, I had a really good sample made, and I thought it was really really nice. But when it got made in full production, it really changed. And this happens a lot between the samples and what what gets made finally that. That when the samples are made, they're made in small quantities. When it goes into a, a bigger machine with different pressures, and sometimes these colors are very temperature sensitive, um, quite often what comes out is like a completely different hue or sometimes even a d- different color. The one I'm talking about is the uh, the festive green with silver. The samples were were much brighter than than that came out. But you know, once they got made, what do you do? You know, we were very disappointed. But once we released it, people who had never seen the samples were not biased, and they they liked it. And we still sell it. Probably like I don't know, it's been in the range probably ten or twelve years. And, and when I look at it now, I say, yeah, it's, it's not a bad color. It's just that it was disappointing from what it was. You know, it, you know, you know what it was initially. You know, there are so many colors that I like. I mean, probably the, the funniest story is the. Uh, um, Jade uh, scarab or scarab jade with, with gold, which when it first, which is I think is an amazing color and it's one of our best-selling colors even now, you know, ten or fifteen years later after it was produced. But that combination, when I first saw it, I said, no, this is not what I asked for because I was going. The combination of that is a, a totally different mix than what you expect to. Or it, the mix is a is totally different than what you of what you would expect to get from what you actually get and. And this is what I found too is that a lot of times you can sit there and, and say, you know, I want this color dye and I'm going to make this kind of combination. And when you put it together, you get something totally unexpected. But quite often, what's totally un- the, the results you get is far better than you could ever have dreamed up yourself. Um, so a lot of it is we call guessing by golly, that you just sort of like put colors together and you get something that's spectacular um, or, or really good. Um, but, you know, most of the time, I can tell you this, you put things together and it gets something that looks really pretty drab or not very good <laughs> at all. I, I think that from, I think about 2007, the factory, we started to number all the samples that we make of, of all the different color combinations. And I think that right now, uh, we're at about 1,180 or something like that, around 1,200. Wow. So that means that they probably make about 120 samples of new colors a year, and from that we choose six. Okay. Now, now I should tell you that quite often, a lot of these samples are just slight changes from the previous one. Like this one might have 1% yellow. This one might have 2% yellow in, in the you know, in the mix. So quite often we'll get like, we'll have a, a color that we want to try to improve on. And so we'll make like 10 samples of variations of the, the of the mix. And we just, we end up picking one out of the, out of those 10. So it's not like 120 totally different samples. It's more like probably about maybe 
30 or 40 different kind of like colors. And then the other samples are variations on those colors, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When we come out with six colors, what we usually end up happening is that one is like a star. It's like a, it's a great color. Two are really good. Two are mediocre. And one doesn't sell very well at all because it's not very good. But the thing is that you never know. The the bright green or the vortex bright green, which has been a very popular color, that color was first made, the sample was made in 2000, I think about 2005, uh, even before we started numbering them. And it wasn't until like 2012 that we actually brought it out because at the time I didn't think it was going to sell very well. But other people said, you know, I kind of like that dye. So I said, okay, well, we'll give it a try. And lo and behold, it was very, very popular. So like I said, a lot of times it's guessing by golly. And you just try colors and you think they're going to be popular, but they're not. And other ones, you're you're very concerned that anyone's going to you know like it and this might be a mistake, end up being the, 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 some of the more popular colors. So you, you, you never really know. So we just try to bring out a, a, a broad range of colors that have a chance of being popular. And we take some samples around the shows and... We ask people, in the, uh, you know, what they colors they think of these samples, um, and to try to get other people's opinions. Because uh, what I found is that I really, I may have a guess, but that's all it is. I really need other people's inputs because you know dice are such a personal thing that people have their own personal opinions, and there's so many people buying the dice that you have so many opinions that the best thing I do is find is is just to. Weed out the ones you know that are, are just plain ugly or that no one says they like. And then try to wheedle it down more and more until you get to like six colors um, and then, then make a release. And then and then hope you're not making a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely there's a lot of different dice. And listeners, if you go to chessx.com and you click on dice, you're really going to see the range of colors that Donald is talking about. We have, of course, opaque, which is solid. We have speckled, which is speckled. We have translucent, which are kind of see-through and clear. And then you've got these really premium like sets. Um, we've got Borealis, Cirrus, Easter, Festive, Frosted, Gemini, Leaf, Lustrous, Marble, Mother of Pearl, Nebula, Pearl, Phantom, Scarab, Velvet, Vortex, Wild. We've got all of these different colors. And in each of these lines, there are also variations on those styles. Donald, do you have a personal favorite line that you love the most? Um, not really. I mean, I have a lot that I like, and some of the ones I like I've discontinued because because uh, they didn't sell very well. <laughs> like like the uh, Gemini was one I really liked, but I think that goes back to the, my backgammon days because there was a there was a set that was kind of close to that color, and I have a certain fondness towards that color from the set and such. But but I should make a comment about our webpage. Okay, our webpage is terrible. It hasn't been updated in years. Okay. The reason for that is, quite frankly, because if I had a better webpage, we would sell even more. I think we would sell even more dice, and we'd have even more of a problem keeping things on the shelves. So, you know, our webpage really hasn't been updated for like five years, I don't think. We have updated the catalog. So if you download the catalog, that's the most up-to-date information that we have. We're going to be doing a new catalog pretty soon. So the catalog we have, we have the 2015 catalog and then the 2016 update. Um, and because we're not doing any new dice this year, um, we didn't do a 2017 catalog. You know, I had to apologize for our webpage, but the reason we haven't really focused on it much is because it's great that we're selling so many. And I really appreciate that everyone's willing to um, spend their hard-earned money on products that we actually, you know, actually make. Um, it's, it is kind of, it is very gratifying, and you know, everyone has a creative side to themselves. And for me, 
it's kind of like ends up being like creating colors. And uh, I've told people that as long as I still get a kick myself personally out of people, you know, buying something that I had a hand in making, I'll keep on doing this. If that energy disappears um, or that emotion disappears, uh, then I'll probably stop doing it because then it's like a job, <laughs> so to speak. And so I probably would, would I, I, you know, would probably stop doing it. Um, but the thing is that, you know, people keep on, on buying it. So as long as people keep on buying the, the dice, we'll keep on producing it. You know, it's a combination effort, you might say. Um, and I, I do appreciate everyone willing, you know, to uh, give us their money so we can keep on doing this. Um, so it's like a symbiotic relationship, so to speak. Um, and and that, that really through thick and thin and, and such, that's never lost on me. That people don't really need to have dice, but they want to have dice and, and they want to have our dice. And so, you know, I just want to get in there like a, like a thank you to everyone for, for buying our products. Um, and I apologize for our webpage, but that's the reason why we don't, it hasn't been updated. And also too, we just, we've just been busy. There has definitely been an increase in the, in the gaming market, you might say, that everyone's sales are up and such. And quite honestly, it's just trying to keep up with it. It takes all our time. So we don't really have that much time per se to uh, um, you know focus on a, on a better web page but we will get it done eventually because five years I mean it's getting to the point to where people think we're out of business because we haven't updated our web pages and so our, our web page in so long <laughs> you know you were just saying Donald how you are so thankful and grateful of the gaming community just spending its hard-earned money to buy these really beautiful pieces of uh, Chessex dice um, I totally you know understand and echo that sentiment I remember when I first bought my first set of like miniature d6 Chessex dice in the little plastic cube case <laughs> I was like just first of all mesmerized by all the different colors and designs I ended up settling on a translucent uh, smoky uh, dice with white pips and I just was just like this is so cool because it looks like these little crystals and uh, since then I've gotten some more dice my favorite has been the uh, Gemini with two colors of blue and purple with gold pips and every single time I look at that I'm just like the swirls it just feels like magic it just feels like there's a fantasy element to it and I know Whenever I go to a magic tournament or a magic event, the people around me, they all have their own dice and they all have them in their own colors. And I rarely see anyone having the same color. I've almost never seen like the same color twice, which is just unbelievable to me. So I just wanted to thank you, Donald, and also acknowledge you and acknowledge kind of what you have done with Chessex to be able to provide this level of joy and this level of personalization to the gaming community and to the Magic the Gathering community. So thank you. Oh well, you're quite welcome. And like this, you know, like I said before, I thank people for for purchasing the product because if if you didn't, if you don't purchase it, I I couldn't produce it. That's just the way it is. Because every business needs money to, you know, grease the wheel. Because you can't find people who are willing to work for nothing. <laughs> Sadly, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's it's sort of like that's that's just the way it goes. It goes hand in hand. You know, I'm just like I said before. I'm just just happy I've been able to you know survive through all the the, the earlier years to develop all this stuff and uh, to be able to to reap the benefits and 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 now and now I have the problem that the the factory um, you know straining to like make the product for us. I mean they're, they're happy about that too, but they recognize it being a problem. They're doing what they can, but uh, um, the factory that makes I probably should is a little anecdote. I. You probably mentioned the factory that makes the really nice dice. That factory was set up right after World War II. And really, 
the product there, nothing's really changed much since about the 1960s. And and the problem they have is that they can't expand. When they first built the factory, it was kind of like out on the outskirts of town. It's now in the middle of the res- residential area. And so they can't expand at all because of ordinances and things of that nature. And the problem is that for them to like set up a second factory on the outside is a huge expense because right now you have like one person who like watches the production of, let's say, four machines. Well, if you start another factory with one machine, then you have one person who has to be there because they can't be in two places at one time. So not only the cost of setting up a second facility, but then the cost of the staffing because you have a lot of staff there um, who are twiddling their thumbs because they won't they won't have much to do is too costly for them to start, and they don't they they don't want to like duplicate what they have because then they, they can produce too much and they won't be able to sell that much. So it's a it's a huge um, you know cost barrier to expand their production. So they really can't make any more. And it's like um, I keep on telling them they should stop making dice for anyone else. <laughs> but for some reason, <laughs> for, but for some reason they're they're not listening to me. <laughs> Well, Donald, thank you so much for joining us today on Kitchen Table Magic. It was really fascinating kind of hearing your journey and also about Chessex history and also how you decide to go about making these different dice with all these different colors. Um, I really appreciate it. And again, from the magic community, thank you for everything that you and Chessex do because you're creating all these beautiful little dice that we are using to really like personally express ourselves as well as to enhance our love for this game. So thank you so much for everything that you do, Donald. You're quite welcome. And again, I I really appreciate everyone's willingness to support us as well as support your local stores because actually that's the best place to to see our dice. Go to your local store and tell them to to buy more colors of dice so you can see them all because seeing the colors in person is much better than seeing them on your computer screen. I'm grateful that Donald could find time in his busy schedule to connect with the MTG community. You can check out Chessex catalog at chessex.com. That's C-H-E-S-S-E-X.com. You can find Chessex dice at almost every local game store that sells tabletop games and Magic the Gathering products. I'm happy that as more players find the game of Magic, Chessex can continue to grow and bring joy to the community. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's show. I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Brian, Marcus, James L., Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M., Neil, James G., Aaron C., Jonathan, Corey, Chad, James E., Logan, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Prescovi, and our new Patreon supporter, Ryan. Everyone's getting a very special gift from Donald Rents of Chessex. I'll be sending out color test dice straight from the Chessex factory in Germany. These dice have unique color combinations and have never been seen in public until now. A big thank you to Donald who grabbed all of these dice for my Patreon supporters while visiting Europe. Listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts like this one, become a supporter at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeping it running by helping to pay for audio equipment, software, and server costs. Again, if you'd like to get these never-before-seen Chessex dice, become a supporter at the Gilder Baron level or higher. A big thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic the Gathering community with the world. And if you buy singles at CardKingdom.com, there's an easy way to support the show. Just use our affiliate link, CardKingdom.com KTM, when you shop. 
If you haven't heard already, I've created a new YouTube channel called Play MTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn-to-play tutorials, level-up advice, card discussion, community news, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. Special thanks to Dev for the shout-out on his YouTube channel that helped me get a bunch of new subscribers. I really appreciate your support, Dev. Follow the channel on Twitter at play underscore MTG. It's also on Facebook at facebook.com slash play MTG, all one word. I'm looking forward to creating new content and I've got some collaborations and new videos in the works. Be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on Facebook.com slash Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the show, there's plenty of past episodes to listen to, and please be sure to share KTM with a friend. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play Magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for Magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre-constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles, from the latest sets to an ever-flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy Magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in-store credit for your Magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com KTM. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. But it's got these bright red highlights and streaks. And what that's caused from is the tree is attacked by beetles and that leaves these little beetle holes. That's an opening for the tree to you know, get diseased. So it actually kind of cauterizes that wound with that red pigmentation. And that kind of toughens it up and protects it from disease and tries to keep the tree alive even though it's being attacked by the beetles. 
it's just a fascinating wood. It's difficult to work with. It's difficult to harvest. You have to wait until the beetles have done enough damage that it's going to have that red pigmentation throughout. But of course, if you go too long, the beetles win and the tree is mush. We have to be very selective to make sure we cut to the most beautiful pieces on the lumber itself, you know, because you don't want it to just look like a maple box, which is beautiful, but that's not what you're going for there. You want that red pigmentation because it really stands out. I'm talking to Eric Dupuis of Wormwood Gaming. Wormwood has been making beautiful pieces for the gaming community with deck boxes and dice trays using responsibly sourced woods from around the world. Eric was sharing with us how a particular wood, Flamebox Elder, gets its amazing streaks of fiery red color. Eric tells us how Wormwood got started and the characteristics of each exotic wood being used. Join me and Eric Dupuis of Wormwood Gaming as we talk about their craftsmanship, the exotic woods of Wormwood, and more, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.